you have all these causes that need supporters, you have all these supporters who are looking for causes to support by analyzing the data um, and by sending good emails sort of explaining what those causes do. We can bring those two sides together. We're selling good food to uh, hungry people. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Josh Nelson, who's built a career in digital advocacy and online communications at places like Credo Mobile and the Alliance for Climate Protection. He's now a partner in the Juggernaut Project, a business which helps campaigns build their email lists by connecting them to people who have opted into the Juggernaut list after seeing ads on Facebook or answering relevant petitions. I spoke with Josh about his career, what he is up to with the Juggernaut Project, and why he recently organized a letter urging NGP Van slash every action to use its products to prevent clients from sending unsolicited emails or engaging in other tactics that Josh finds objectionable. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Josh Nelson at the Juggernaut Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Josh, would you mind introducing yourself, giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Josh Nelson. I am co-founder of a company called The Juggernaut Project. The Juggernaut Project exists to help democratic campaigns and progressive nonprofits grow their email lists with opt-in supporters who actually want to hear from them. There were really two things that motivated me to start The Juggernaut Project last year. One uh, is that I believe that if left unchecked, spam email from Democratic campaigns and progressive groups and deceptive emails uh, from Democratic campaigns and progressive groups run the risk of killing email as a viable channel for both fundraising and advocacy. The second reason I wanted to start the Juggernaut Project is because I've spent most of my career, uh, the past 15 years or so, uh, as a digital practitioner. And I've found that there's a significant lack of capacity among vendors when it comes to helping campaigns and organizations grow their email lists. It sounds like a pretty interesting business opportunity for you. I think you probably know that I like to kind of get to know my guests and walk through their career a little bit just so that I know who I'm talking to and and the audience does also. Tell me a little about where you grew up, what kind of family you come from, and, and you know, take me through college perhaps. Absolutely. Um, so I was actually born, uh, if you want to go all the way back to the early 80s, uh, born in, in Stuttgart, Germany, uh, West Germany, uh, on a military base. Uh, my parents had met and, and fell in love uh, in basic training. 
and ended up being deployed uh, to Germany together um, back you know during the Cold War. My parents moved to Texas uh, after that, lived in El Paso, Texas, Austin, Texas. Uh, my father had, had grown up in El Paso. Uh, my mother ended up uh, going to graduate school for social work. Uh, she's a social worker at UT Austin there. When I was about six, we moved to Oxford, Ohio, uh, which is the home of Miami University. Um, so my father could get his, uh, his PhD in psychology, and he's a psychologist. Uh, my mother had grown up there in the Cincinnati area uh, near there. I would say I had a pretty typical Midwest childhood, eating cheeseburgers and hot dogs, going to summer camp, uh, playing sports, um, that sort of thing. Uh, ended up going to college, probably a little too close to home. Uh, there at Miami University after uh, largely growing up uh, on the campus there. Um, I had finished high school in three years, and so I sort of, in my opinion, jumped into college before I was ready. I had just turned 17. I was not um, prepared uh, in terms of maturity um, or probably intellectually for um, uh, university life and sort of jumped into it without really knowing uh, what I wanted to do, which I think is you know the case for a lot of folks going into college. I had an interest in, in computers and technology, um, so I started out majoring in what they then called systems analysis, uh, essentially computer programming. Quickly learned that, uh, at least at Miami University uh, at that time, uh, a little over 20 years ago, that was mostly math, which I did not uh, like nearly as much. Took some time off school uh, there for a while after one year, ended up coming back to Miami and trying to get into the um, the education program. I was pretty apolitical at that time. I was always, you know, liberal and progressive, but I just, I wasn't involved uh, on campus. Uh, at that time, I didn't follow politics or the news closely. For me, when Bush was elected uh, in 2000, um, and then, you know, 9-11 happened, um, it was, it was, you know, pretty demoralizing. And my response to that at the time um, was to sort of uh, unplug and tune politics out. That started to change when uh, Bush started the Iraq War. Uh, a couple years later, that sort of reawakened uh, me politically, and that uh, process was was turbocharged a bit when um, I was shocked uh, to see Bush uh, be reelected. Then in two thousand four, around that time, I uh, realized uh, education wasn't necessarily for me either, uh, and that I wasn't going to be a teacher. I changed majors again. Uh, and got into uh, an incredible program that was uh, it was called the Western College Program. Um, it was interdisciplinary studies. And it was a very unique undergraduate program in which you could uh, essentially design your own uh, undergraduate major, take whatever classes you wanted to take, and then at the end, write a thesis, an undergraduate thesis, um, sort of tying it all together. Um, so I took lots of classes in uh, political science, sociology, and in a new program they had there called uh, Interactive Media Studies, and ended up um, writing my thesis on uh, the role the internet played in the electoral process in the United States, uh, essentially using the, the Dean campaign as a case study. During that process, uh, as I uh, was, was working on the thesis, um, I, I figured, you know, if I'm writing about this and studying this, I might as well um, put some skin in the game. So I started a local political blog uh, at that time, I think it was uh, CincinnatiNews.blogspot, uh, long, long since gone. And through that experience, got to meet uh, local politicians, running for mayor, running for city council, uh, met all the other local bloggers, and sort of got plugged into the local Cincinnati political ecosystem there. Tell me about your first work out of college. 
Yeah. So after college, I was, you know, this was 2005 and I was still, I was living in Cincinnati um, near uh, where, where I had grown up and gone to school. And I spent a little bit of time bartending, uh, promoting nightclubs, doing things like that. Um, determined after a year or so that um, I was not going to be able to find um, the type of political or nonprofit work I wanted in the Cincinnati area. I moved to Washington, D.C. on my 25th birthday uh, with you know, enough money to survive for a couple months um, sharing an apartment you know, with a stranger in Virginia and no job prospects, no real connections in the political or advocacy space. Applied for quite a few jobs uh, and was rejected for quite a few jobs. My only uh, qualification was a, a bachelor's degree and a little bit of blogging experience. I ended up working at uh, National Wildlife Federation, a wonderful conservation organization, uh, works on climate change and uh, all sorts of environmental and conservation issues. Um, I was uh, helping run the email list there, um, helped uh, launch the blog there, um, and sort of dipped my toes into what we then called Web 2.0 uh, and sort of using... Uh, using websites like Dig and and, and Reddit to uh, to drive traffic to um, nonprofit websites. Tell me a little bit more about what you learned there on that front. So one piece I learned is that there are lots of amazing nonprofit organizations, and lots of uh, democratic political campaigns that are very good at saying what they want to say. They have their message down. Um, they know what they want to communicate. They have tremendous expertise. And there's this um, shortcoming when it comes to um, putting that message in front of people. So I became very interested in um, sort of the, the different mechanisms for driving traffic to websites, growing email lists, um, making it possible uh, and ideally even easy um, for organizations to reach like-minded people um, with their expert messages. What did you try that worked? What did you try that didn't work? Yeah, so we had some success with blogging. We relaunched the, the organizational blog there. That was, you know, this was back in 2007 when, uh, when blogging was still a thing. We had some success um, getting a little bit more aggressive with the, the organization's messaging. It's a very nonpartisan organization um, that in the past had been reluctant to um, weigh in on anything that, that might seem political. And there was one instance where Rush Limbaugh um, said something very foolish and unhelpful about climate change, right? It's a hoax, it's phony, um, that sort of thing. Nothing too surprising there. Um, but we called him out pretty aggressively in a blog post there. Um, and then we were able to leverage some of the connections I had made in the sort of DC political blogging community um, to bring in a bunch of links and inbound traffic from you know, prominent national blogs uh, and get um, some attention for the organization that it wouldn't have gotten otherwise. It just always feels like a game to me, this, this seeking of attention by organizations. And like, it's, it almost irritates me how full of gimmicks it often is. You start off by saying these organizations know what they want to say, and they have expertise and they have clarity about their mission. They have to like develop these sets of expertise to draw attention to themselves that involve citing Rush Limbaugh. Isn't this kind of an ugly world developing online where you're chasing attention in, in ways that, you know, are just not dignified? 
it's it's a challenge and and you know i would argue that it's much broader than than the online world and that that happens with brick and mortar enterprises as well right so one good example is um you know costco the company does not aspire to um sell the rotisserie chickens for five dollars and hot dogs for one dollar this is sort of the the piece that gets people in the door right so they can then presumably spend much more money um, on other items I, I think the important thing whether you're a, a, a democratic campaign or, or a nonprofit that's you know growing their email list or trying to get traffic to their website I think the important thing to try to stay true to is your organization's values right and so while you're engaging in uh, new tactics um, while you're trying different things to reach new audiences stay true to you know what your organization um, believes in and the value you bring to the work. Do you think that when you're sort of citing Rush Limbaugh and stuff, you're doing that? I think it was important to, and remains important to um, push back when when prominent figures are uh, lying about an, an important issue like climate change. In that particular instance, it proved to be, I think, an effective way to bring attention um, for the organization uh, among like-minded people. Um, who also believed in climate change. There's always some public figure saying ridiculous things about climate change. I guess there's no shortage of that. For any organization, it, it should be a balance, right? Part of the content that you put out into the world is going to be reactive. That's built into the world we live in. Um, but part of it, um, ideally, um, should also be um, proactive um, and going out there and telling the story that, that you want to tell um, and putting the information that you want to put into the world in front of readers and listeners. Why did you leave uh, National Wildlife Foundation? Yeah, so I was, I was there for about a year. I enjoyed it uh, and I was learning a lot. I had the opportunity uh, while on a conference call uh, there at work to meet some folks who worked at a, a consulting firm uh, called the Hatcher Group. They asked me after the call, um, hey, let's, let's get lunch. Let's talk about um, digital. Let's talk about yeah, what new media, Web 2.0, uh, whatever they called it. Um, so I had lunch with them, had a great conversation with them, largely about sort of driving traffic to organizational websites, right, and finding audiences for the great work that groups are doing. And they immediately said, "Hey, you should um, you should meet Ed Hatcher. He's you know he's looking for somebody like you." Ed had worked on Capitol Hill, uh, had been a, a spokesperson for various agencies in the 80s and 90s, and then started his public affairs PR firm. Um, it was more of a traditional communications sort of media pitching operation. So I ended up going to work there uh, in 2000. How long were you at Hatcher? Uh, so I ended up there about two and a half years. Um, so, uh, you know, fantastic Bethesda, Maryland-based firm. I was the first sort of uh, uh, digital person in this traditional uh, PR firm. Um, got to work for, for some amazing groups um, like Annie E. Casey Foundation, uh, for example, one of their big clients setting up blogs, getting, getting organizations, you know, both nonprofits and foundations um, set up on social media, helping get their email programs off the ground, um, that sort of thing. Why'd you leave? Uh, left there for another opportunity as well. I've been, uh, I've been fortunate to, ne- to not have to, uh, you know, leave a, a job because I didn't like it. I've always sort of, I've liked all the uh, positions I've held and just had um, sort of other opportunities come my way. So I'd been there for a couple years and I was just getting more and more into climate change and environmental issues and wanted uh, to, to work on um, those issues uh, full-time again, as I had before at National Wildlife Federation. 
was great at Hatcher Group. Uh, and it was great to um, sort of um, broaden my horizons and, and do a lot of work on you know, state budgets and uh, economic policy and things like that. Um, but I wanted to get back to climate and the environment. So there was a, a job opening that came up for, it was essentially a, a deputy director of the digital program uh, for Al Gore's nonprofits, uh, Repower America, Alliance for Climate Protection, uh, the Climate Reality Project, sort of the constellation of nonprofits there. The position was reporting to uh, my friend, Taryn Steinbrickner-Kaufman, um, who later founded Some of Us. Um, and had you know spent time at the AFL-CIO and elsewhere, a brilliant colleague. And so I was also excited about the opportunity to work with her. Um, as it turned out, uh, during that interview process, I, I went through a couple interviews, and then I was on the way to what I thought would be the final interview with the chief of staff uh, of the organization. Uh, Taryn called me uh, when I was on the way and said, not sure how to say this, but um, I'm, I'm leaving. You're applying for my job. Uh, got there, uh, and they offered me the job. Uh, on the spot. So what was that job exactly? My title was Director of Online Communications and New Media, um, what, what they now call a digital director. So I had a about a 10-person team that uh, ran the, the email list, had a you know, multi-million person email list, um, which was you know, uh, less common in 2010 uh, than, than it is now. Ran the social media accounts, the various websites, had a, a small video production team, uh, a couple analysts. And so largely what we did was each day we would produce uh, all of the content for all of those different channels. Um, we would write the emails, write the tweets, the Facebook posts, produce a video, blog posts, anything else. Uh, my job was then essentially to shepherd that you know 10 plus page Microsoft Word document um, through a lengthy and arduous approval process. I would bring it to uh, the communications team. I would bring it to the lobbyists. I would bring it to the scientists. I would bring it to the general counsel, bring it to the chief of staff. Then if it was an email going to more than half the email list, the chief of staff would email it to Al Gore uh, and we'd wait around until it was approved. How long would that typically take? So it would take all day. So we would try to, we would produce the content in the first like half of the day. So it's, you know, lunchtime, it's early afternoon, start moving it through the process, try to get it approved by the end of the day so we could post it the next day. Did you kind of chafe at that? It was, um, y- you can tell. You, it, it, was a, uh, it was a frustrating uh, experience to, um, you know, to, to have to go through such a lengthy process for a tweet, for example. It's interesting because if you're, if you're Al Gore and you care about what's going out under your name, you want to have a look at it. And if you're operating in the world of, you know, of Twitter, then everybody is, is just like right at each other right away. And it just doesn't fit. Which do you think is better? The pace that would involve a principal looking at it and taking a day to simmer on it or what you were looking for? That's a good question. I mean, I think to be relevant on social media in particular, and to an extent just on email or, or online in general, you need to be a little more timely than we were because of that lengthy approval process. Um, we were we were constantly tweeting yesterday's news, um, and that probably played a role in, in some of our challenges gaining traction on social media. I can completely understand um, that if you are a you know a, a political figure or, or somebody in that position, that you need to maintain pretty strict control over over what goes out in your name. So I think there could have been some value in sort of splitting it up by channel and saying, 
you know what, we trust you to do a good job on on social media and on Twitter, maybe even on the blog. Um, if you want to send an email that says it's from Al Gore, it, it might take a little longer. Yeah. I mean, I think there are principals who who do decide to delegate that and trust their digital director or whatever to have their voice and and get it right. And there are those who don't. And Al Gore is pretty forward thinking on technology and and climate, but I guess came from a different generation a little bit on wanting to be in that loop. I'm not too surprised by that, but I can see why a young man trying to be relevant would would give a shit. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it, it raises an, an interesting point, which is that now you have many democratic politicians who have handed control of their digital presence, um, or at least their email program, to some pretty um, unscrupulous uh, consulting firms. Let's hold on that for a second, because I think most of the consulting firms for Democrats are pretty are, are pretty scrupulous, actually, but they, they do vary. And I'm sure we can get to that. And that's a pretty interesting job for, for uh, someone interested in climate. You only stay there for eight months. Was it the approval process that made you want to leave or what, why, why such a short time? I was certainly frustrated um, by that approval process and, um, you know, how, how it made it uh, much harder for us to do our job. You know, if you're doing rapid response digital work, you just you simply can't do that well. Um, when, when your hands are tied with that sort of approval process. As I was working there, we got engaged in a campaign in the fall of 2010 to uh, stop a referendum in California um, paid for by um, some Texas oil companies trying to overturn California's climate change law. We were sort of recruiting volunteers to plug into the, the field organizing effort there. We were um, you know, encouraging people to to vote against the referendum, that sort of thing. As part of that process, I got to work with um, the folks at, at Credo Mobile slash Credo Action, the progressive uh, mobile phone company based out of San Francisco. They were largely leading the field effort at the time. They had opened, um, I believe, 10 field offices across the state, um, and they were using their large email list to um, sort of recruit volunteers to Canvas and Phone Bank um, to... Uh, say, quote, hell no on 23. Uh, it, was, it was Prop 23. In that experience, I was just super impressed um, by how, how effective Credo was. And I was drawn toward some of their aggressive messaging, right? The, the hell no on 23, the type of uh, messaging that I think a lot of us have found works to fire up and mobilize grassroots supporters. So I was watching, I was sitting there at the you know institutionally conservative uh, Alliance for Climate Protection, um, where, you know, seven people had to read every tweet. Uh, and then watching these folks at Credo with um, probably a, a bigger email list and a bigger digital presence than, than uh, the Alliance for Climate Protection, having essentially um, free reign. They had the, the trust of, of their employer to go out there and um, say what needed to be said and do what needed to be, to be done to get the job done. Yeah. Um... So you jumped ship and headed to Credo. So they recruited me to uh, to, to jump ship uh, and work for Credo. I was uh, hired as the first uh, remote employee. Uh, everybody else was in San Francisco at that time. I was I was in Washington still. And uh, Becky Bond, the brilliant political director at the time, said 
you can work remotely for a year. After that, you know, we're going to need you to, to move out here. So a year passes. At that time, my wife's in grad school uh, in DC. And I said, I can't move. I want to keep working for you. This is great. And she said, um, you can work remotely. But if you want to get a promotion or move up in the company, you're going to have to move here. I said, okay, that's fair enough. Uh, I talked to my wife and, you know, a, a year later, uh, but by 2013, uh, when she finished grad school, uh, we then moved to Oakland so I could work in the, the San Francisco headquarters there. So how was Credo for you? I think it's a pretty missed part of the ecosystem since uh, it's sort of, I don't know, disbanded under mysterious circumstances, as far as I can tell. What was it like there for you in that time? You were there for a long time and moved up in the ranks, and it probably was a pretty formative place for you. Tell me about it. It was fantastic. Um, the, my experiences at Credo um, very much informed uh, who I am today, um, both personally and professionally, all for the better, uh, as far as I can tell. It was a great idea, I think, for for a company um, to sort of have a, uh, a mobile phone company um, that exists to promote progressive causes and then uh, donate millions of dollars. They've now donated tens of millions of dollars to progressive nonprofits. They've done some uh, innovative uh, super PAC and, and political work. Um, and then also had this um, sort of um, advocacy organization, social change organization uh, embedded directly within the company. I very much enjoyed it. Um, got to work with um, you know some of the folks who I think are, are among the smartest and most talented people um, in this industry, you know, I already mentioned Becky Bond, um, Rashad Zahid, who I know has, has been on your show as well, uh, Heidi Hess, uh, Nicole Regalado, Jordan Kruger, uh, Michael Kieschnick, who, who co-founded Credo. Um, some of the folks uh, on the business side are, are very sharp on all of this as well. Ray Morris, uh, who's now the CEO, uh, Rob Mascola um, in, the, in the business intelligence department. At the risk of um, leaving folks out, I'll, I'll stop there. But uh, got to work with um, just just some amazing colleagues uh, over the years at Credo. Uh, Elijah Zarlin, I should say, uh, was my, my first supervisor and taught me a great deal about writing compelling emails that drive people to take action. So I started out in 2011 working exclusively on state and local um, anti-coal campaigns. So this was the time when Sierra Club was leading sort of a national effort to shut down coal plants all over the country. And so I was using Credo's large email community for the most part to plug people into uh, campaigns led by Sierra Club and um, state and local groups to pack uh, a public service commission hearing um, where they've never had more than one person show up to testify and suddenly 20 people show up saying we need to shut down this coal plant, that sort of thing. Um, spent a while, a couple of years on that uh, and then um, Rashad Zahid came on board as the as Becky's deputy, as deputy political director, um, and he uh, brought an idea to Becky uh, to start a member-generated petition website um, using a software called Control Shift, sort of a essentially a progressive change.org. Rashad launched that, and then I moved over from sort of working on environmental campaigns to working with him uh, to help run uh, credomobilize.com. And um, Nathan from Control Shift been on the show also. What was that tool set like for you? How, did it work well? Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, it, essentially, it made it really easy for uh, individuals to start uh, their own petitions 
um, and then for organizations to sort of help support those individuals to win those campaigns. Um, so somebody could go in, start their local petition. I was then sort of the, the first line of defense that would go into work in the morning, read every new petition that came in, um, offer feedback, approve those, reject them uh, as needed, um, and then work with those folks on um, getting people to sign their petition and then on communicating with their petition signers to get those folks to um, take more meaningful actions um, to get the change they wanted to see, whether that was um, driving phone calls to a decision maker, um, getting press attention on the petition, um, getting folks to show up to an in-person hearing or protest. I've never been a big fan of these petitions. Not really sure why. They've always felt a little fakey to me. I suppose there are ones that aren't. What's your general feeling on that mechanism for, I mean, it seems to be a pretty effective mechanism for generating people onto lists. What's, What's your general take on that? Yeah, folks have made the the sort of clicktivist um, critique for a long time now. The way I see petitions is that they are essentially the easiest and best way um, to get a large number of people to raise their hand and say, yes, I care about this issue and want to get involved with an organization working on that issue. On their own, um, they are you know extremely unlikely uh, to lead to um, the change that uh, that you want to see in the world, particularly at the federal level, right? Members of Congress have been inundated with with so many millions of petition signatures. It doesn't really register with them anymore. Do you think people signing those petitions think they're making a difference? I think some do and some don't. And part of that, you know, gets into how um, how the petitions are characterized um, in emails, right? And so I try to characterize petitions honestly in that we're, we're building we're building support to this cause you know for this cause um, on the flip side you'll see you know folks send emails that say if a hundred thousand people don't sign this petition by midnight the voting rights bill doesn't pass and Democrats will never win another election again like, right drawing that direct connection that's just not true what do you think of the surveys that go out they seem like fake surveys to me often they come out of party committees you know we want to know your opinion about a bunch of stuff. And then I always have the feeling that they're not going to look at it. They want the correspondence or they want the donation or something, the connection with me. Is that, is that any different? Um, I would say that some of those are legit and some aren't. So, you know, the juggernaut project, we do a survey in our welcome email. Somebody signs up, you know, typically with a petition to join our email list. The first email we send them is a one question survey about you know, asking what issues they care about, they tell us directly, um, and they're essentially opting into getting more emails about those issues. Um, so we use it that way. At Credo, um, similarly, we did surveys on and, and actually looked at the results, right? We wanted to understand where our members were on various issues, what their issue prioritization was. I think Credo members were actually almost voting on where to spend money, right? Yeah, so Credo does have, um, with their donation program, uh, credodonations.com. Uh, you can vote um, every month um, how to split the donation between three nonprofits um, to split $150,000. And so that actually does determine where real dollars go. I think what you're referring to is a lot of these um, surveys that are just designed to get somebody onto a donation page. Some of the worst examples of that um, come from a PAC 
called um, Stop Republicans Pack, or their affiliated Progressive Turnout Project. Their email programs are, are run by a firm called Mothership Strategies. Um, so they'll do surveys like, should Joe Biden be impeached? They know that they're sending it to uh, Democrats and progressives. So they know everybody's going to click no, or 97% are going to click no. You open the email and you'll start to see um, a, a countdown clock counting down from three minutes, like like you only have three minutes to, to complete it. Sometimes they'll say things like, by opening this email, um, your response has started. And if you don't respond, we're going to have to count you as a yes, that Biden should be impeached. So sort of manipulating people to get them to, to click through. Um, you click through, you go to a survey that'll have typically four or five questions, you know, the first one will be what was in the email. Do you think Biden should be impeached? No. Um, do you think Republicans are irresponsible? Yes. Should we hold Republicans accountable for trying to impeach Biden? Yes. Um, then it'll say something like, good Democrats are donating to, to stand with Joe Biden um, and stop him from being impeached. And that'll be check boxes. One will say, I can ship in $5. The next one will say, I can ship in $25. The next one will say, I can ship in $100. The fourth one will often say something like, I can't donate right now, but maybe later. Those are your only options. There's no like, I'm not going to donate to your pack. No matter what you select on those checkboxes, even if you don't select any of those, uh, you click submit, you go to an Act Blue donation page that says in all caps at the top, you promise to donate, uh, exclamation, exclamation, another three minute countdown saying you only have three minutes to make your donation. If you don't donate within 15 or 20 minutes, you'll often get another email from them um, that says um, something was wrong with your donation. It didn't go through. Click here to, to complete it now. So those types of surveys. Does that stuff work? Unfortunately, um, I think it does. Um, there was an article in the New York Times a few months ago uh, by a reporter named Shane Goldmacher and he worked with uh, the, the data team there at the Times to um, analyze some of these types of tactics. On this, they were specifically looking at the, uh, the, the pre-check recurring donations. That's a separate thing, but yeah. Yeah, many, many of us believe that um, these tactics, um, like that tactic, um, tend to disproportionately harm senior citizens uh, who are major Democratic donors um, and who uh, use email. What would you say is the difference between the parties on this. I read that article and I read, uh, you know, probably all the other articles on similar things. My sense was that uh, this is far more egregious on the other side, on the Trump campaign side, on the Republican side more generally. What's your sense, though, about the balance between the parties on some of these practices? I think that's absolutely right. When it comes to email fundraising tactics um, or when it uh, comes to the, the substance of their policy positions, uh, I think Republicans are are far worse. More misleading. I know that they're doing so many practices that, that you know, including the, the sort of recurring donation pre-check thing. I think they're doing that far more. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Democrats have, in, in, in part, uh, in response to Act Blue, changing or, or clarifying one of its policies, um, Democrats have uh, made some improvements uh, in, in the past few months. But I mean, even before that, I think th there was quite a disparity, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Republicans are, um, are, are, are shameful uh, and they'll, they'll do anything to, um, to, to cheat and lie to their own supporters for money. 
it's my sense also that the vast majority of the practitioners on our side, the consulting firms and the committees and the candidates are doing a pretty good job at that. You've identified one of the firms that is sort of not like that. Would you say that that's true also, that most of the firms on our side are doing a decent job and most of the candidates? Or do you think that the balance is less good than that? I would differentiate between two different pieces, the spammers and the scammers. Um, so the deceptive tactics, um, that's that's the scammers. I, I would say you're right, that most the Democratic campaigns, most Democratic consultants um, do not um, actively, intentionally uh, scam people or deceive them or guilt trip them into donating. Um, some still do, far too many still do, um, but most don't, a majority do not. Are the ones that that are doing it wrong, is that mostly associated with a small number of firms like the one that you've highlighted? Yeah, mothership strategy is, is, is a big piece of it, but there are, there are other sort of copycat firms that have seen that um, if all you care about is raising money in the short term um, without regard to whether people are, are being tricked into donating, without regard to the candidate's reputation, without regard to the fact that there's you know, real people on the other side of these emails, there are some copycat firms that have sort of jumped in to try to play mothership's game. Yeah. I talked to Mike Nellis. I don't know if you listened to that a a little while ago, who also, you know, is up in arms about these kind of practices and was cited in that New York Times article. We all want our side to be doing the right thing. Right. And we want the other side to, too. It seems like there's some reform that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's right. That, yeah, that a majority of Democratic folks have reduced the uh, the scammy and deceptive tactics. There's less of that now than there was even six months ago, um, thanks in part to some of the, um, the scrutiny we've seen from reporters recently. One great example of that with the, the phony donation matches, right? So this is, this is where, you know, campaigns and PACs will send emails that say, um, for everybody that donates by midnight, a group of wealthy donors is, is going to 5x match or 3x match. I always thought that they had lined somebody up when I followed those things. You're saying that is unfortunately not true? With political campaigns, it's often not true. Um, that tactic originated with um, nonprofits um, who were lining up wealthy donors to match the donations. And, and who had donors who could give large amounts, right? They were not limited by FEC or state election commission rules. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So one recent example of that was uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi's email program uh, run by a firm called Sapphire Strategies was sending emails almost every day saying that she was going to personally 3x or 5x match. They always said personally, every donation that came in by a certain time period. What can that even mean? At at a virtual conference a few months ago, it came up um, with one of the folks at Sapphire Strategies, the reporter from Campaigns and Elections Magazine asked, um, and they essentially said, well, it's, it's backed up by the finance team. So what they meant by that was, we're gonna raise four times more from wealthy donors in San Francisco or wherever it is than we raised online. So she will raise that. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. That, that was how they justified it. Um, here's what happened though. A reporter uh, at Axios, Lachlan Marquet, asked Pelosi's campaign about it uh, in May. That was the last time they sent one of those emails was the day the reporter asked about it. Um, so I think the campaign realized, wait a minute, this is not legit. And, and it could have consequences uh, in terms of bad press. Do you think that was a case of 
like earlier when you were kind of a digital director, you wanted the delegation of that and to do to do the work and use your judgment. And maybe the firm was doing the work and using their judgment and not clearing that. It seems unlikely to me that Nancy Pelosi, with all she has going on, is concocting a scheme like that. It seems much more likely that her firm is doing it. But obviously, I'm not close to that. I think that's right. Um, ultimately, the principal themselves is responsible, right? Whether you personally review every piece of content that goes in your name or you put systems in place uh, and hire the right people to ensure that nothing goes out that reflects poorly on you, that comes down to the candidate or the organization. I think sometimes with some of these, there's a bit of uh, plausible deniability going on where they, oh, that was that was a digital firm. We don't even look at that stuff. Not everyone is Al Gore and paying attention to the details, perhaps. Yeah. And a campaign manager or somebody like that certainly should have maybe signed up for the email list. Sounds like at least they stopped. Did you leave Credo when it sort of came to an end? Is that what happened? Yeah, last yeah. January. And everybody that I've talked to about that has been fairly closed-mouthed. What happened? Do you know? I can't speak to that. Did something bad happen, like ethically or? Uh, no. 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 It just had to shut down. It was a strategic shift um, by the organization. Uh, but no, there's nothing... Um, there's nothing to hide. Uh, I'm super proud of uh, all the work we did there and everybody I worked with there. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so it sounds like you started in March, Kennedy Heights Group, and in June, Juggernaut Project. You're out on your own in both. What's the organization structure for both of these and how have you launched into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So with Kennedy Heights Group, I started that, as you said, last March um, as, a, as a vehicle for consulting, uh, just a, a single member LLC, um, did a, uh, an audit of uh, Common Causes email program, uh, pretty comprehensive look through that, um, did, ran digital ads for a, a Democratic super PAC uh, last cycle, um, projects like that. Which, which super PAC? Uh, it was called Just the Truth. I was mostly doing YouTube and Facebook ads. Uh, unless you're a, uh, a swing voter in a swing state, uh, you, you shouldn't have heard of us. And then uh, co-founded uh, the Juggernaut Project uh, with a gentleman named Adam Highland, um, who uh, runs his own digital advertising firm called Econova. Um, and so the way we split things, um, he essentially is the lead on all things advertising. Uh, I'm the lead on all things um, sort of email and petitions. Um, we have a couple uh, contractors as well um, who help with um, placing ads, designing graphics, writing emails, those sorts of things. How many uh, employees do you have at this point? So we're very small. We have, um, you know, Adam, Adam and I, uh, and then we have we have two contractors. Um, we're about to um, uh, hire several more contractors, maybe some full-time folks. And who do you work for? Yeah, so we've been fortunate to work for uh, about 75 uh, Democratic campaigns and progressive nonprofits um, so far this year. A lot of our work does come through um, some of our agency partners, um, like Middle Seat Consulting, folks from the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, M&R, a uh, big firm, uh, Trilogy, another big firm. Um, and so many, probably two thirds of our, our clients come through um, relationships with those agencies. Um, we've been able to work with some amazing nonprofits like Planned Parenthood, Sierra Club, 350.org, Ultraviolet. Um, groups like that. Um, probably our, our two biggest issue areas where we've done the most have been women's rights and, and the environment. Um, and then on the political side, 
Uh, we've been able to work with uh, AOC, Pramila Jayapal, uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, John Fetterman, campaigns like that. That sounds like a good practice for you, somewhere where you wanted to take yourself, right? Like you're getting to work for the side that you want. That's a pretty broad range of the Democratic Party when you talk Schumer to AOC. And it's a pretty broad range of nonprofits, right? You're pretty happy with where you have things right now? Absolutely, yeah. We want to serve the full spectrum of Democrats um, and the full spectrum of sort of liberal or progressive causes. Uh, I'll say that I'm closer to an AOC and my partner Adam may be closer to a more moderate Democrat. Tell me what it is that you're actually doing for these clients and for, it sounds like you're also sort of a sub or a additional contractor for some of the the big name firms like Trilogy. Explain what, what services you're, you're adding. Yeah, so we only do one thing. We help grow their opt-in email list. And so a lot of these firms, um, you know, whether uh, Middle Seed or MNR, they might be um, managing an email program. Um, they're writing the emails, they're sending the emails, they're brainstorming with the team what emails to send. As part of that work, they'll help grow the email list um, and then they'll come to vendors like us or run Facebook ads or do things like that to uh, continually grow the list. So most of our work to grow uh, clients' email lists uh, comes through um, us sending emails to our in-house list. And so we'll say the pressure is building on President Biden to you know, cancel student debt loan debt. Um, Pramila Jayapal is, is leading that fight, signed Pramila Jayapal's petition to join her campaign um, and push Joe Biden on this. Over the years, there have been a number of enterprises that have had that kind of model of build a list internally and then sell access to that list in a way that involves showing people that they have the opportunity to do something out in the world and trying to like make them opt into that. What models did you look to when you were thinking of, of this for yourself? Yeah. So there, you know, a number, like you said, a number of folks have done this over the years. I know you had, um, you had John Linko on the podcast, um, maybe a couple of years ago or a while back. And, um, one of the ways he described it on, on your podcast really resonated with me. He said, we're a matchmaker service. You have all these causes that need supporters. You have all these supporters who are looking for causes to support by analyzing the data um, and by sending good emails, sort of explaining what those causes do. We can bring those two sides together. You know, some of the change.org was in this business um, for a long time. They largely did it by, you know, creating a, a big petition platform, um, which is, is something we've explored as well. Care2? Care2 has done a great deal of this as well. Um, and, and they similarly have a, a platform with the, the, the petition site.com. Um, more similar to our uh, current model um, is, is like a left action or a democrats.com or, or a daily coast uh, who largely do it through um, the sort of, you know, quote, list rental uh, mechanism. Um, part of the reason um, a lot of folks gravitate toward that model is that people who join your email list through uh, an email send tend to be more responsive once you start emailing them. Um, and that's true on all the metrics you might care about, opens, clicks, petition signatures, donations, sort of down the line. You want people on your list who want to be on your list. Exactly. We also do run Facebook ads uh, for clients. Um, and that's what, you know, Adam and his team are, are very good at sort of, you know, developing lookalike models that bring people in 
um, at a very low cost per acquisition, right? So you can run Facebook ads and get people to sign to join your list for um, a much lower cost than through an email list rental. They just tend to be much less responsive. So maybe that math works. Maybe it doesn't. How, how big is your list at this point? Uh, it's high six figures um, and uh, very active. Um, so we run our own petition campaigns to, to keep folks engaged. Um, and we primarily send email to people who have been active in the past 30 days. We have sort of stricter um, list hygiene uh, practices than a lot of organizations. It sounds like it's a growing list and, and you're working on growing it. What, so what happens, to, let's say I sign up for your list because I saw a petition or I got, saw a Facebook ad. Um, what, would then, what would I then see? I said, I'm interested in minimum wage. I'm interested in climate change and I'm interested in, uh, you know, voter suppression fights. Yeah. You would then start getting emails from us, um, asking you to, um, mostly sign petitions, um, either from us or from our clients primarily, but not exclusively about those issues. That's the main way that you kind of move somebody from your list to, to somebody else's is through their petition, or can they send directly to your list, just an email? We allow um, clients to, if they have an email they want to send, which some of our agency partners do, um, you can send an email that says, um, you know, the from line will be 350.org via the Juggernaut Project. Um, we still control that. We review it. We click send, um, but they'll send us the content. And so the email can be from them. Um, as sort of a one-time thing. And that's an opt-in email. 350 is asking them, want someone on your list to opt into 350's list. Exactly. Yeah. Join us by signing the petition, calling for Joe Biden to cancel line three pipeline type of thing. And someone I assume can opt out of all of Juggernaut at any point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we even, you know, if somebody doesn't want to get our emails, we don't want to send them emails. Um, and so in the welcome email, we make it, we say there's an unsubscribe link at the bottom of every email. If it's not for you, that's okay. Here's where you can unsubscribe right now. Make that unsubscribe link a little more prominent because we want um, the people who uh, appreciate our service and, and want to be plugged into opportunities to join other organizations and other campaigns. Who do you think is on your list? What do you sense is the overlap between people who are on Credo's list or people who are on Move On's list or people who are on... Schumer's list or like, what do you know about the people that you have attracted? Not as much as we'd like to. Obviously we know their name. We know their zip code. We know their email address. Um, for many of them, we have like a phone number and address. Do you match them to other, other data? We have not. Um, we've considered it. Um, and, and we've decided not to for now. Um, there are these, um, you know, companies that you can pay to do a, a consumer data append if you want to know, um, you know, which, which magazines they subscribe to or even get um, demographic information. We have considered that, decided not to for now. The most interesting thing I think we know about them is, is which uh, issues they care about the most. A little bit of that comes through uh, surveys, um, but primarily through their own behavior, right? And so if somebody, um, somebody really signs environmental petitions, but they don't sign pro-choice petitions, um, we try to um, use that data to um, connect them with uh, like-minded groups. What methods have you used to bring attention to Juggernaut as an enterprise? You know, we started last summer and really just started building the email list. And um, by by fall, we were, you know, probably big enough to 
start working with clients. Um, it was kind of a, a strange time with the, the presidential election, obviously not the best time for campaigns to do email acquisition. After the election around Thanksgiving, um, we emailed uh, about 15 people um, and said, hey, we started this thing. Here's how it works. Um, thought of you as somebody who might want to give it a try. Um, from there, got a handful of clients and word uh, spread organically. We never did a you know a big public launch. I, I put together a list of like 500 individuals I've worked with over the years that I was going to email uh, a pitch to. Never got around to it. Um, we had so much uh, business coming through word of mouth that it wasn't necessary. You've created something that people want, right? They want bigger lists. They want more people on their list because they want to raise money off of them or maybe other things, but mainly raise money. Is that right? Exactly. That's right. And there's, you know, it goes back to this, this mismatch that I had noticed between the sort of the, the supply and the demand for high quality email opt-ins, which has existed for, you know, as long as I've been paying attention, which is 15 years now. Um, so yeah, essentially we're selling, we're selling good food to uh, hungry people. Not a bad idea for business. You seem to have pretty strong opinions about the consultants on the democratic side that you work with, some of whom seem to pass you business and I assume others who don't. Talk to me about how you see the digital consulting firms on the left. How do you see the space? Yeah, so broadly, there's this divide in, into two camps. Um, one side of this is the people who say winning this next election or raising as much money as we can right now so we can win this next election is the only thing that matters. And we're going to do um, whatever we can to raise as much money as possible, um, despite um, any uh, potential consequences of that. So this is the uh, uh, what I would call the spammers and scammers. The other side of that is folks who say um, winning this next election and raising as much money as, as possible is extremely important, but there are um, ethical lines uh, I'm not willing to cross. And there's a long-term view that we don't want to burn our audience. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's a growing number of people who have been you know, saying for years um, and, and more and more um, recently um, that we run the risk of, of killing email as a viable channel. I mean, it seems like it's the same thing with texts, isn't it? Like texts worked as a political tool and I think still do because people weren't getting very many of them. Right. And so if you got one from your local state Senate race that said, you know, can you help out? Can you vote? Whatever it was, you're like, I'm going to pay attention. But if you get a thousand texts, you're going to unsubscribe to them. You're not going to listen to them. They're going to get lost. It's one of these really difficult things to, because there's no central management. The tendency or, or the incentive for any particular consultant or campaign is to fire off emails like crazy without regard to the ecosystem. What do you think is the best way for us to have the best interest, the long-term best interest of the Democrats, progressives at heart when we do things? How do we, how do we cr create that culture properly? I think we, we have it to some degree, but we don't have it fully. I would argue that there are um, entities that play a leadership role in the space that, that can and should um, help articulate um, the standards um, for what's acceptable and what isn't uh, in terms of email fundraising, uh, and then help uh, enforce those standards. It would be good to see uh, party committees 
um, play a bigger um, role in that. Um, but unfortunately, um, historically, at least many of the uh, most problematic tactics, um, in fact, originated with the DCCC. I think it's unlikely that they're going to um, play a leadership role anytime soon. Have they gotten any better? I don't know what the DCCC um, specifically. I uh, I unsubscribed uh, as any as any uh, uh, smart person would uh, after years of abuse. Um, I, I think big picture we are um, we are making some um, progress. I mentioned the change in the in the Pelosi campaign's email program. That that sends a signal um, to other campaigns about what is and isn't okay um, given her role. And the consultants are the ones who are actually like telling campaigns how to do this. They seem like another category of potential leaders into change. How do we talk the ones that are the spammers and scammers, if that's indeed what they're doing, into being better citizens? There have been a lot of um, efforts over the years to name and shame those folks. And so, you know, if you go on um, the listservs or the Slack groups, um, you know, over the years, um, those, those folks have come under a lot of criticism. People have tried to reason with them. Um, they've tried to shame them. None of that has worked so far. Um, ultimately, I think you can't um, shame someone who's shameless. Um, I just don't think it works. I've come to believe that um, other entities need to step in uh, and, and change the incentive structure by um, changing the rules of the game. Josh, one of the things that brought you to my attention recently was a letter that you organized um, which was sent rather pointedly to the CEO of Every Action and two people at the private equity firm that bought them recently, where you ask them to crack down on some kinds of email fundraising that you feel is out of line. And having talked to you this long and understanding your history, that I trust that you have authentic feelings about this. You understand these practices pretty well and you have a business in this area. And I worry a bit that by going after one vendor rather than more broadly talking to the space that you leave yourself open to the criticism that you're doing this as a publicity stunt or because you favor other players like Action Network that you're associated with. So I just want to first ask you, like, if you could advise an influential group on the progressive side, which might include the key consultants and the party committees and the vendors and other players like that about what changes ought to be made, what sort of practices ought to be reduced or removed and how that we might collectively as a space kind of do better? What should we not be doing? What should we be doing that we're not doing? You know, broadly speaking, I am concerned that unethical email fundraising practices, um, like sending spam, like intentionally deceiving people, uh, run the risk of killing email as a viable channel uh, for fundraising and advocacy purposes. That was the motivation behind the letter, regardless of, of what, any, what anyone else you know, might say or might think. The types of things that I would like to see happen in the industry broadly, um, you know, from every action and from others in the space, uh, are exactly the things outlined in the letter. 
people should not send uh, unsolicited spam emails. I think uh, vendors like EveryAction and others should not uh, look the other way when their clients send unsolicited spam emails. People should not send uh, misleading donation emails um, or other intentionally deceptive emails talking about things like bogus donation matches, deceptive recurring donations, uh, emails that mimic appointments, flight notifications, bills, um, or other official correspondence. And then I think the vendors, like every action and others, should prohibit uh, their clients from sending those types of uh, deceptive emails. Okay. Who would be the other key vendors that you would want to bring into that kind of change? I mean, because you, you've, again, focused on one in particular, and who would you want in that room to hear that same message? Any uh, email vendor or CRM that progressive groups and democratic campaigns uh, use to, to send emails uh, or to raise money um, should be part of that conversation. You know, that includes Action Network, uh, which, which I'm a client of. Um, I pay them. They don't pay me, to be super clear about that. Um, that includes uh, Act Blue, uh, crucially, on the fundraising side, um, the big democratic uh, donation processing site. Um, there are other vendors out there who you know, play a role in the ecosystem, um, whether you know, acoustic or engaging networks or um, MailChimp or, or folks like that. But every action and action network are the big two uh, email vendors for you know, democratic campaigns and progressive groups. And among those, uh, every action is considerably larger. They have a much larger client base. And historically, um, they haven't done as good of a job when it comes to um, cracking down on these types of practices. In that New York Times piece and elsewhere, it's pretty clear that the Republicans are more egregious practitioners of things that you're objecting to. Is there any worry that we put our side at a disadvantage in campaigns by disallowing some tactics? I don't worry about that. Um, I think countless uh, political campaigns, countless progressive groups and consultants have shown that uh, if you treat supporters with respect, um, if you're honest with them, um, if you make an effort to inspire them, uh, you can raise huge sums of money without resorting to, to spamming and scamming folks. On the flip side of that, um, I would argue that by continuing to engage in these tactics um, and you know, for vendors to continue allowing these tactics, um, we're going to burn donors out. Um, we're going to drive democratic and progressive donors away uh, because we're teaching them that by making donations, they're just going to get added to more email lists. Um, we're teaching them that by opening our emails and clicking the links, um, we're just going to continue sending them you know, deceptive emails. Um, so I think ultimately, in the long run, Democratic campaigns are going to raise more by treating supporters with respect. What do you think are the best positive, ethical, successful email outreaches that you've seen? Like, what would you point to to say, look, guys, do this instead? You know, a couple of prominent examples are uh, some presidential campaigns. Uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, I thought, ran a fantastic email program. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's presidential but campaign. Be specific about what about the, those programs that you liked. What do you think makes a great email program? Absolutely. Um, so a couple pieces to it. One is is substance. Um, so sending people emails about 
um, real issues in the campaign or or substantive um, policy items um, rather than the sort of um, you know the the very simple you know one question survey uh, you know should Joe Biden be impeached that's just driving people to a, a fundraising page um, so substance is one piece of it um, t- treating people with respect um, not. Uh, intentionally deceiving people with the email uh, subject lines uh, or the the bodies of the emails themselves. Another piece of that, I think, is, you know, you see great things from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's email program. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that she um, frequently uses her email program to actually help her constituents, right? And so in the aftermath of, of Hurricane Ida, when some of her constituents were suffering there, she used her email program to raise money for them uh, instead of just for her campaign. Uh, like we see from so many other folks. Um, so those are three pieces of it, sort of a constituent service piece, um, treating people with respect, um, and including real substance in the emails. Well, I'm, I'm definitely with you on all that. And it's really been a great to get a chance to hear about your career and the expertise you've developed. And uh, I, I, I wish you the best with your business. Anything else you want to say? Thank you, Nathaniel. It's been great speaking with you. Uh, one other thing I, I want to make clear about the uh, the letter to every action and my advocacy in that area uh, is that I am not at all trying to harm every action's business uh, or cause problems for them. Um, I hold no animosity for the company, uh, its leadership team, or its employees. Uh, in fact, I've known Mike Liddell, their general manager for digital, uh, for well over a decade. Um, I think he's a great person. I've only spoken with um, their CEO, Stu Trevelyan, um, once, but I got a great impression of him as well, uh, which I told my team at the time. I have lots of other friends and colleagues in the company that I have a, a great deal of respect for. The open letter, uh, along with uh, my direct communications with senior every action employees uh, over the past few years, are intended as a friendly nudge in the right direction. Um, you know, as I said, I believe that that these types of practices, if they're left unchecked, uh, which I hope they're not, um, are, are going to kill email as a viable channel for fundraising and advocacy. Um, and so there are dozens of people um, in the industry uh, working to um, push all of us in a more ethical and sustainable direction. I don't think we're going to be able to do it uh, without every action's help. Um, and so that's why the letter was directed to them. And that's why their clients and others are continuing to call on them to take these issues more seriously. Okay. Thanks much for your time. Appreciate it. That was Josh Nelson. Josh is at juggernautproject.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with a Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.